Greetings from South by Southwest. I'm Jeffrey Lieberman, Chair of Psychiatry at Columbia University, and this is my podcast, Shrink Speak. Instead of coming to you today from the Columbia University campus on the Upper West Side of New York City, we're live in Austin at South by Southwest. This conference is a diverse and very dynamic and exciting conference, and it's wonderful to be here and to be able to introduce topics related to mental health, psychiatry, and mental illness to an audience in this venue. Now, we're gonna talk today about what is, for those people that are in the know, one of the most prevalent, yes, overlooked problems in our society, and that is emotional trauma. Now, we usually hear about emotional trauma in the context of soldiers and in connection with military combat. It's called PTSD, post-traumatic stress disorder. And PTSD began as a condition described as soldier's heart in the Civil War, shell shock in World War I, and then combat neurosis, battle fatigue, World War II and the Korean War, and then only in the Vietnam War did it receive the designation as post-traumatic stress disorder. However, emotional trauma is not limited to the military. It occurs in civilians as well in response to various stressful events, such as being a victim of violent attack or robbery in an auto accident or natural disaster like an earthquake. But the effects of a stressful, intense experience that can produce mental trauma is especially noxious when it occurs in children, in young people. And unfortunately, too many of our youth experience these traumatic effects in the context of the adversity they face as they're growing up. Now, to discuss this topic, we have one of the leading experts in the world on the areas of the neurobiology of stress and the effects of psychological trauma on the developing brain and mental health and development of children. And that is none other than Dr. Charles Nemiroff, who is a professor of psychiatry and neuroscience at the University of Texas Dell Medical School in Austin, and the director of the Institute for Early Life Adversity Research. So there's probably no better person on the planet to be able to talk authoritatively on this extremely important but not sufficiently well-known topic. So welcome, Charlie. Jeffrey, it's just great to be here with you. And you didn't have to travel very far, too, since you're uh, on the campus. No, but parking was a problem. <laughs> well, the next time you'll walk. So I'm going to begin with a series of questions. And uh, from that, you know, the discussion is going to evolve. And then uh, we will, since we have individuals that have uh, seen fit to join us in listening to the discussion we're gonna have, I'm gonna invite comments from uh, people who wanna ask questions. But first, let's, let's try and get the terminology straight because I think it's important. Everybody knows terms like stress, okay? You know, so what is stress? And then what is trauma? Is trauma an extreme form of stress, something different? And here we're talking not about physical trauma, like a trauma surgeon, but mental trauma, and then Finally, uh, what is adversity and how do they relate to stress and trauma? So let's start with stress because that's something that all of you um, and all of us experience all the time. And stress is biologically defined as forces that, that challenge the system, that perturb the system. 
And that could be physical challenges like exposure to cold weather or heat. It could be dehydration. There are lots of physical uh, stressors, if you will. Uh, but today we're going to focus more on emotional stressors. Though when we do talk about post-traumatic stress disorder, one of the points that we're going to make is that individuals that are exposed to physical trauma, such as traumatic brain injury, uh, for example, or involved in, 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 a, in a mugging or a terrorist attack or the like, uh, will have a combination of physical um, uh, challenges as well as emotional ones. So stress is something that we experience and it's extremely graded. So the fact is a little bit of stress can be very activating and particularly for individuals who thrive on that. And many of you know people like this that a little bit of stress is really good. But it, it's in what we call in science an inverted U-shaped curve, meaning a little bit of stress can be okay, but chronic and severe stress is extraordinarily detrimental to your health. And at the extreme end of stress is trauma. And trauma uh, takes many different forms. Uh, Dr. Lieberman already alluded to things like muggings, uh, domestic violence, car accidents, uh, airplane crashes, and the like. Um, and uh, and post-traumatic stress disorder um, is the only diagnosis in the entire psychiatric diagnostic manual that depends upon an external event. Namely, you must have a traumatic event that is life-threatening and extraordinary out of the ordinary in order to fulfill criteria for that syndrome, which we'll talk about a little bit later. I'm going to make one correction to your last comment, which is there's two. The other is addiction. Oh, well, uh, yeah, obviously. So there's also something else embedded in the explanation that Dr. Nemiroff just gave, which is important to highlight because I think it's something that is not understood by the public in general and is central to being able to have a better way of conceptualizing and understanding mental disorders and mental states. And that is, the brain is an organ. And it's an organ just like the heart, the lungs, the kidneys, the stomach. And all organs are susceptible to various types of insults or challenges or stresses. But these usually come in the form of infectious pathogens, bugs, uh, toxins, physical trauma, metabolic disturbances. The brain is the only organ that can have an insult or a challenge that can adversely affect it that's intangible. So you can't cause yourself to have asthma, kidney stone, indigestion, a heart attack without some physical insult. But the brain is susceptible to the intangible and to the experiential effects. And this is really the essence of how stress, if it's not managed adequately or the experience is too intense, becomes traumatic and then pathologic. If I could just intercede, I, you know, I'd, I'd have to correct Dr. Lieberman here about one point, and that is Touché. because the brain, of course, controls the rest of the body, right, stress can, in fact, result in physical symptoms so that you're all familiar with the concept of stress-induced asthma. 
there are individuals who are totally well controlled with their asthma. They get into a terribly stressful situation and they start wheezing. And we are beginning to understand how stress is transduced in the brain that then controls these other organs. Similarly, um, uh, disorders uh, like Crohn's disease, ulcerative colitis, are, are majorly affected by a patient's anxiety level or mood. So there you go. Charlie, I learn something from you every time <laughs> we talk, and, and that's absolutely true. And the caveat, though, is that for these intangible factors to influence peripheral organ function, the effect needs to be mediated through the brain. Absolutely. So just to show you how misleading people's understanding of the brain and mental function and behavior is, our popular culture celebrates the heart. It's warm-hearted, hard-hearted, cold-hearted, big-hearted, so forth. And you know that's not the case. You know, the heart's basically a muscle. It's got four chambers and a series of tubes. It's a pump. But, you know, it's a nice metaphor when it's really the brain that's doing all this. But what is it then that, and talk about resilience, because the ability to manage stress as opposed to have the stress be deleterious depends on a person's capacity for resilience. So it's really important uh, to recognize that um, all of us are genetically vulnerable to certain disorders. As I tell my patients, you know, none of us get through life unscathed. We're all going to have something that we have to deal with. And a lot of that, um, of, of that is, in fact, genetically determined so that some people are vulnerable to diabetes, some people are vulnerable to depression, some people are vulnerable to schizophrenia. Um, and, and part of uh, the reason I'm bringing this up is because resilience is also a characteristic that is, uh, to a great extent, inherited. Um, it has to do uh, quite a bit with temperament. And for those of you who have children or have watched children, you know how different they are. There are some children that are extraordinarily um, anxious, um, even as one or two-year-old. And Jerry Kagan did those studies where he showed that um, if you took 10 um, uh, uh, one- or two-year-olds and you put them in a room, eight of them would sort of mingle and play with each other, and two would be in the corner, and they would be terribly anxious. Those individuals turned out to be not very resilient and extremely anxious in new situations. So resilience is the capacity to take a hit, a stressor, uh, and be able to um, continue to function without any, any decrement, right? Without any change in mood and anxiety. And to give you an example, in the worst trauma that you could possibly suffer, 9-11, only 30 to 35% of the individuals who were there at the World Trade Center and exposed to the most horrific trauma developed post-traumatic stress disorder. Same was true in the Oklahoma City bombing. So 65% of individuals have the capacity, either through genetics or temperament, to be able to, to not develop a major psychiatric syndrome. Right? That doesn't mean they weren't upset. They were really upset um, at the time. But for whatever reasons, they were resilient. But at the same time, even though 
based on their constitutional or genetic capacity for managing intense stress through their resilience, everybody has their breaking point. Would you agree with that? Well, so probably wouldn't agree with that. So, and the reason is, if you look at the Holocaust data, there were simply some individuals that, that showed, although they were upset about the situation, and obviously physically were extraordinarily malnourished and damaged, they did not develop psychiatric sequelae. They were, uh, if you will, um, they were constitutionally unable to develop anxiety and depression in the face of overwhelming trauma. But I, I think it is graded, Jeffrey, and certainly the more severe and chronic the stress is, the higher the likelihood that you're going to fall off the cliff. And we see that spectrum of either resilience or susceptibility in the military. So to use your analogy about the people who were exposed to 9-11 or the other traumatic events, soldiers in combat, about a third seem to be susceptible to developing PTSD. But if you then have repeated tours of duty, where they go back to the theater of war, or they're in particularly intense firefights or circumstances, then greater proportion of those that didn't initially develop will develop it. But or case in point in that population, in twin studies, so identical genetic um, uh, material, um, twins who went into, into um, combat, those that were exposed to early life adversity and then were exposed to trauma in combat had a much higher rate of developing PTSD than the twin that didn't have early life adversity. So there are a number of factors that either increase or decrease your vulnerability um, to deal with trauma. So I think one takeaway message for the listeners can be is that stress is not prima facie bad, but it can be, and there are ways to try and manage it, that you can learn to manage it. So I'm going to ask you two questions simultaneously. You can answer them in any order or way that you, you want. One is, is you've been talking about resilience, you've been talking about stress, you've been talking about trauma and the consequences of it. What's happening in the brain that is leading to these things that are happening in the environment to an individual that produces this effect on the brain which can be enduring? And then the second question is, since adversity, that which can be traumatic, can occur to people at all stages of the life, why is it more pernicious when it occurs in children? Okay, those are two big questions. So we'll start with um, the second one first, and that is um, the human brain doesn't fully develop until age about 24. Um, and, and the developing brain, we know this um, from a variety of sources, is vulnerable to insult. So in, in other mammals, the brain develops much more rapidly. But in humans, it, it, it really isn't fully developed until you're a young adult, which is probably why teenagers do some of the stupid things that they do, right? Because they're not fully myelinated and their cortex isn't fully developed. And we know that the developing brain is vulnerable because of the studies of fetal alcohol syndrome, of lead toxicity. And I would call what Jeffrey's question 
um, um, really lends itself to is what we call behavioral teratology, that exposure to an adverse environment in the form of child abuse and neglect is associated with changes in the brain in the same way that alcohol or lead can cause changes in the brain. And we've been able to document this um, as a field by doing brain imaging studies. And so the two fundamental kinds of imaging studies we do are structural brain imaging studies where you're looking at changes in the brain structure itself. And Marty Teicher at Harvard and our group and others have actually shown brain changes in the brain of adults who were exposed as children to physical abuse, sexual abuse, emotional abuse, and neglect. And one of the great unanswered questions is whether such changes could be reversed or not. And we don't know the answer to that yet. The second type of brain imaging changes are called functional brain imaging changes, which is look at the activity of the brain. And the brain is very unique in that unlike more mundane organs like the heart or the liver, the brain um, uh, is extremely complex, right? It has 100 billion neurons, brain cells, and 80 million other cells called glial cells. And every brain region is different and has a different function. So what you can do with these imaging techniques, and Dr. Lieberman has done seminal studies in this area in schizophrenia, is you can put folks in a scanner and then you could show them a stimulus, like a happy face or a sad face, or you could have them read a script of their trauma. And when we've done that, we've been able to see how the brain responds to those, those memories. And unlike reading about, you know, watching paint dry, which is sort of a dull and neutral stimulus, when individuals um, actually uh, read their autobiographical script of what happened to them, brain areas light up, become very active, uh, particularly areas of the brain like the amygdala uh, and other older parts of the brain that control emotion. And what we've learned from these studies, is, uh, which has been very surprising, is that the effects of early life trauma persist for the lifetime of the individual. When we started this work, um, nobody th thought this was possible. And uh, all of our grant applications were denied, and we were told that it was silly to think that something that happens when you're six years old could actually have a long-lasting biological effect. But because of the brain imaging studies um, and other studies that we'll talk about, um, the data is ironclad that these are very long-lasting, persistent effects. So this is something that's, when you talk about social determinants or social factors that influence the development of an individual, their susceptibility to illness, their susceptibility to be antisocial, their ability to contribute productively to society, there is so much that's consequentially happening when they're young and the extreme form of that are the kinds of adversities that many face, whether it's poverty, whether it's bullying, whether it's parental uh, abuse, that occurs naturally 
and the individual is left to, by virtue of their resilience or whatever resource they have, to deal with it. And, and this is an, a huge area of potential benefit, however, it's politically controversial because people will say, oh, it's social engineering and uh, every child is their parents' God-given victim and so we don't act on it. But as Dr. Nemiroff is saying, the, what we've learned from scientific experiments, many of which are done in humans, but a great amount is done in various types of animal species, rodents, subhuman primates, etc., is that this is a area where interventions, not pharmacologic, just you know, psychosocial types of interventions could be hugely consequential. And I was talking with uh, Charlie uh, before we began the podcast about one of my favorite authors or books, you know, Charlotte Bronte. Jane Eyre was an individual who was incredibly resilient. And all, all these Dickensian characters were incredibly resilient. But for each one of those, there were tens of thousands that weren't and were damaged by this. And one of the great manifestations of progress in, 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 in civilization and, and uh, humankind, in addition to our extended longevity, has been the ability to recognize how individuals can be treated and protected as they develop to become one you know, less susceptible to illness and, and, and pathology, but also to contribute productively to science, society, and civilization. So let me, I'm, I'm gonna get on the soapbox here for a second. Early life adversity in the form of child abuse and neglect is a more important factor in predicting disease and shorten lifespan than in any other single factor that there is. I'm not gonna repeat it, I feel like I should, I'm not gonna repeat it, but the fact is, is that I'm, I'm, I, I do a lot of research on genes, genes are really important, okay? But a single gene finding pales in comparison to what early life adversity does. And what the uh, uh, seminal studies done by the um, uh, CDC, the Adverse Childhood Experience uh, studies have shown is that um, early life adversity in the form of physical, uh, sexual, emotional abuse and neglect is associated with an increased risk for heart disease, stroke, asthma, obesity, addiction, suicide, depression, the list goes on and on and on. And Jeffrey's correct in that society doesn't want to deal with it. Okay, because it, it makes people uncomfortable. It's easy to write a check for cancer or heart disease. Uh, but the fact is, what, what the data shows is a extraordinarily high rate of early life adversity in the United States and the rest of the world that cuts across all socioeconomic classes. This is not something that's happening only in, 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 in our um, indigent populations. This is happening across the board, and I see it in my patients every single day. Now, it's not like this is something new. It's not a new epidemic. It's not like Ebola or AIDS was or uh, swine flu. This has occurred historically. It's just we now recognize what the consequences are and what could be done which would mitigate it and improve the overall well-being of humankind and, and, and civilization. Make no mistake, this was much worse in terms of the treatment of 
uh, youth historically for the most part. There's also one other thing that's important to, to mention, which if I lose my train of thought, I'll remember. <laughs> uh, I'll come back to it, I'm sorry. The good news is, for some things, nothing's going to happen to improve the situation until there's some breakthrough in scientific discovery and knowledge, <laughs> like amyotrophic lateral sclerosis, Lou Gehrig's disease, or Alzheimer's disease, or there's really complicated issues relating to global warming and climate change. Okay, you know, we know a lot, but we don't necessarily know everything. This is something that's right in front of us, and shame on us if we don't do something about it. It's right there to be done, but it requires the social and political will. So, you know, just to highlight what uh, Dr. Lieberman has said, the, the forms of early life adversity um, that are completely preventable are, well, the obvious ones of training at-risk populations about um, uh, getting angry with your children, hitting your children. Um, uh, you know, parenting is, is not for the faint-hearted. Those of you who have children know that. But the fact of the matter is um, neglect, um, you know, if, if both parents are working two jobs and you're eight years old and you have to be alone all the time and, and your parents come home after you're asleep, that is a really tough life to live. Um, so neglect or emotional neglect, being treated as if you have no worth is a form of abuse. But, right? at the, but at the same time, we, we can't get into the nanny state situation because on one hand, we, we equate abuse with emotional and f or in, in physical abuse, uh, oh, hypercritical, never satisfied, always uh, a demeaning or physically beating or other types of kind of abuse. On the other hand, there are these maybe indirect or you know, kind of collateral damage kinds of abuse that occur. So the question is, how do you, how do you craft a model of the understanding? Of, so just like if you raise kids in an environment where there's air pollution or there's secondhand smoke or there's lead paint that they could ingest, that will have bad effects. How do you create a social environment or a family environment or an educational environment that's not pandering but is supportive and mitigating of the potential detrimental effects? Well, the, the critical term here, I think, is attachment. So we have to be very clear about this. So the relationship between a mom and their child in that first few months of life is absolutely critical in the child um, being able to feel safe and protected and valued. And so um, the, the beginnings of early life trauma start within utero exposure of bad things, right? Drug abuse, alcohol, tobacco, that creates a, a in utero environment that's toxic. And as you know, Jeffrey, Danny Weinberger's recent work on placental genes and inflammation implicating in the pathogenesis of schizophrenia. So you start with that environment. And then um, uh, think about um, the period um, after birth in terms of uh, breastfeeding, uh, if, it's, if it's possible. Um, and the close relationship between mom and the child. So if the mom has severe postpartum depression and is unable to bond with the child, 
that is a, a, a deleterious form of neglect that has consequences, right? Then there's early childhood, and uh, as many of you know, children uh, start foraging away from their mom and dad and start exploring, but they're always looking to make sure they can get back to the safe zone, right? That's what we hope normal development is about. Um, and as, as Jeffrey described, fostering that self-esteem and independence that's so important. And much of the damage that's done, putting aside the obvious severe physical and sexual abuse that's, that's just you know almost hard to, to even talk about, but being able to educate parents about what kids need, right, early in life, and then the transition to school, and then that presents all these, these challenges. Jeffrey uh, alluded to cyberbullying. That's something that we didn't have to deal with when we were growing up. And it's vicious. And, it, and you know it's resulted in kids committing suicide. Right? I mean, uh, so, so these trauma-related um, episodes, and we're just now beginning to learn about um, the difference between a single traumatic event that occurs and, and then what about cumulative or chronic types of stressors. And clearly we've been focusing on, on children a lot, but trauma in adults is also a, a tremendously important issue. Uh, historically, mental health care, psychiatry, behavioral health has been kind of neglected. It's been the stepchild of medicine. It still gets short shrift, even though it's more recognized and valued now than it ever has been, and more in the United States than in probably any other place in the world, but it's still way behind. And I just want to use this as occasion to sort of sum up so we can then move on to the next phase of the discussion. So experiential events are stressful, but we manage stress every day and the body is built to establish or maintain an equilibrium. You exert yourself through a workout, and then you warm down, and you then recover. The brain does this every day also, because you're faced with uh, numerous challenges constantly in making decisions and experiencing things, getting into situations where you have to make decisions, fights with your boss, discussions with your, with your children. The brain is working and equilibrates. When you have massive stresses, which are overwhelming or very taxing, the question is, is how capable is it to do that? So these are occurring normatively. When they're massive or exceeding your capacity for management and resilience, in adulthood they can be consequential in terms of symptoms, even such as PTSD, but it's much worse when they occur early because then it's lifelong and we usually think about it in terms of what are the psychological sequelae, you know, predisposition to depression later, anxiety later. But it's physical illness and longevity also. This is really very, very, it's, it's like a, this is, I was told I could swear, this is really f***ing bad stuff. It's like a pan-organism uh, insult. You, you look at, well, Jane Eyre on one hand, then you look at the Romanian orphans. They're you know, disabled and stunted for life because of what happened at a certain point. So 
the idea of being able to try and preempt or mitigate this in youth is, would be so valuable to society. The other thing is, as Charlie mentioned before, that the human species is the, has, has the longest period of child dependency on parents. You know, other species, mammals, mammals, you know, they're dependent up for a period of time and then they're able to be independently functioning and they leave the, the nest. In humans, it's increasing. You know, it used to be that children in the industrial age went to work, and then they had passed laws, education was extended, so you made a transition from adolescence to adulthood in the teens into the early 20s. Now, it's even longer, into the 30s. So people look at this as the millennials, it's not good, it's, they're becoming too dependent on parentals. But there's a benefit to it because it suggests that there's the preparatory process of continued development in the brain that's enabling people to spend more time developing before they become productive in an independent way. So there may be an evolutionary significance. So to just protect that and take full advantage of this evolutionary trend by having the levels of type of social mechanisms in place or either sources of information to mitigate that would be hugely beneficial. So how do we do this? So what, 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 are, what, are, the, what are the venues and the uh, ways in which we can introduce these, which are no-fault concepts. We're not blaming anybody. It's how can you do things better? Well, I, I think first I have to follow up on, on Jeffrey's comment about um, the availability of mental health services uh, in the United States because uh, fundamentally um, this is a psychiatry and psychology issue. The best treatments we have for post-traumatic stress disorder are a combination of, of evidence-based psychotherapies, and we can talk to you about what the best therapies are, and uh, certain medications. But the fact is that we don't have true parity in the United States uh, as regards um, uh, coverage uh, for any of us. So, you know, the fact of the matter is that if you're unlucky enough to have a diagnosis of heart disease or cancer, almost all of the healthcare policies provide relatively reasonable coverage. But the coverage for psychiatry and mental health services is extremely limited. And so one place um, we have to begin to um, uh, address this is in that area, which is a public policy uh, issue. And if you look at the rates of suicide in the United States, you find that the highest rates are in areas that are the biggest states with the least mental health services available. Montana, Nevada, Alaska, uh, et cetera. So, and there are wide variations among states in terms of providing Medicaid uh, for those who need it. But quite frankly, in, in, in most, for most of us, um, third-party payers do their best to not pay for mental health services, and that's simply a fact. So that, that's one area that needs to be addressed. Another is in the area uh, of prevention, right? We already alluded to that, the notion that there are, there are certain at-risk groups um, uh, that are, are in danger. Um, we've thought for a long time that individuals who 
themselves were victims of child abuse and neglect tend to also be involved as adults in, in being perpetrators. Um, uh, thirdly, we haven't talked about this yet, but there's increasing evidence of what's called intergenerational or transgenerational transmission of trauma. Now, how is that even possible, right? So I don't want to get into a lecture about the biology of trauma um, and bore you all to tears, but there are um, trauma associated um, with, can affect both the sperm cells and egg cells. And changes in gene expression that can occur um, can be transmitted um, to the next generation. So that what you end up with in the case of early life trauma is a situation which I, I was talking to Jeffrey about this earlier, just fundamentally uh, one of accelerated aging. That one of the reasons people um, who are victims of child abuse and neglect don't live as long is they develop disorders that generally don't occur until later in life, like heart disease, stroke, diabetes, certain forms of cancer. And we do biological measurements of age, um, like measuring telomeres or measuring um, um, epigenetic uh, uh, indices, uh, these individuals look older biologically than they are chronologically. So the, the, the biggest uh, area in my mind, um, uh, and I was meeting with a group today um, that um, uh, oversees the care of um, children and adolescents who've been victims of human sexual trafficking. And um, we, we were talking about the, tr the treatments. And the fact is we don't actually know what the best treatments are because there haven't been big studies. So if, if a government agency identifies a child who's been victimized, well, what is the best treatment? What kind of psychotherapy does medication help? Can we reverse these or prevent these biological um, changes that, that will occur, um, uh, we really don't know. And the amount of, of research funding available to target this area is, again, relatively small compared to um, other therapeutic areas. So I think there's a lot to be done. The, in my own mind, the, the most important question is what's the best treatment for people that have been exposed to trauma, particularly children, but adults as well, and how can you match an individual patient sitting in my office to the best treatment for them? And that's called personalized medicine, and Jeffrey can speak a great deal about that, but we've, we've been fabulous about that in the cancer arena. We can measure markers, and we can determine um, a, to a, a great extent what the best treatment is for you, we're p very good at it if you have an infection, and we know what, what antibiotic to use. We're terrible at it in terms of psychiatric disorders. And some patients respond to some treatments and not others. But the, all of these obstacles have contributed to a rising suicide rate in the United States. 
You know, it's the 10th leading cause of death in the United States. It's the only one that's increasing. The other nine are all decreasing. And part of that is related to trauma and early life trauma. And well, suicide is the tip of the iceberg of a negligent, failed uh, healthcare policy in addition to other contributing factors. Certainly, stress and trauma can lead to uh, a path where individuals uh, are vulnerable to self-injurious or, or, or behavior or suicide. We're, we're throwing a lot of information at the listening audience, and I just want to try and sort of see if I can frame it in a way that summarizes a bit. So what Charlie was talking about before with the telomeres, with the different types of accelerated aging, which can be measured at a cellular level, is essentially a cell biology of aging. The aging field now has a concept called allostatic load, which is basically the cumulative wear and tear on your body at an individual cellular level that reflects your chronologic age. And your chronologic age doesn't have to be congruent with your physiologic age. You can be a very young 50, or you can be a very old 50. And this is actually definable, identifiable at a biologic level. And the opportunities for interventions that this provides are numerous. However, the ability to develop these opportunities to the point where they're ready for prime time application in a doctor's office, the support for that is just painfully limited. That's a scientific summary. At the more global summary, stress and extreme experiential stress that overwhelms an individual and produces potential psychological consequences, which are traumatic, is not good for adults, but it's much worse for children, which extends not just to making them psychologically symptomatic, but produces a vulnerable person who's going to grow up and in life be susceptible to a whole range of diseases, which are going to impair their productivity, cost money to treat by the healthcare system. There are numerous things that could be done right now before even developing the scientific you know, leads that have been identified that would be beneficial at the most rudimentary social level. So where would this be done? Well, in schools, in pediatricians' offices, in the workplace, in community settings, religious organizations. This could be done very easily. At my university, we're doing it in areas that are underserved minority communities, and Dr. Nemiroff has pioneered approaches of this, but it's being done in a really, on a kind of a demonstration project, limited base. They're not widespread programs like Project Head Start, or they're not being done in a way which is population-wide, and it's just, it's just a crying shame because it's not that we don't know and don't have the means, it's just we're not doing it. So the area, this area of research, which is a newly emergent one, just like precision medicine is, is something which is, it needs to be, we need to spread the gospel. And we also need to be able to mobilize ways in which this can be, upon a policy level, developed and instituted and skirt the political gauntlet of you know, differences in whether there should be passive government which allows everything to default to the individual 
or there should be more programmatic approaches based on what we know from scientific research that can be applied in a useful way. We're not gonna get into politics. We're the pointy-headed scientists. We don't know about that stuff. But at the same time, healthcare is too important to be left to the politicians. So Jeffrey, I'd also add one other point, um, um, which is um, the legal side. So the legal system um, has a lot of difficulty dealing uh, with this issue. And in particular, I worked very closely with the state attorney in Miami-Dade County when I was in Miami. And um, the, the constraints related to the state penal code in terms of retaining um, individuals who are clearly guilty of horrendous crimes, like human sex trafficking, uh, is uh, the obstacles are extraordinary. And one of the problems in the child abuse arena, um, and, and the, one of the reasons why we've had so much trouble studying um, the consequences to child abuse and neglect, is that you can't study children without permission from their parents. And oftentimes the parents are, if not abusive themselves, willing collaborators in the process. And so that makes it extremely hard uh, for us uh, to, to do these studies. So I think at this point, uh, we've opened a lot of areas of uh, new knowledge, potential applications to uh, individuals, families, communities, society. And we've talked a little bit about what the obstacles are in doing so, which, uh, as frequently is the case, you know, progress from research to healthcare to policy to government. And that takes us way out of our, way over our pay grade and out of our, our element. I'm gonna pause here before offering any other comments about how we can proceed with that to say that we'd like to have some comments or questions if there are any from Let listening audience. Let me just audience. make one other comment, Jeffrey, and that is um, we focus so much on early life trauma because it's been a um, uh, it's been a passion of mine, but to just say something about adult trauma. So individuals are exposed to adult trauma, right? And that can be a car accident. It could be a medical event. It could be having a heart attack. It could be having surgery. It could be a mugging. It could be any number of things. And for 30% or so of those people, they're not okay. They're not okay. The medical stuff gets cleared up, they get discharged, but they're not okay. They're anxious, they're hypervigilant. We haven't really talked about the symptoms of PTSD, but having terrible nightmares, having intrusive thoughts, avoiding anything that reminds you of the trauma. Their life is fundamentally changed. Their brain has changed, their biology has changed, and they're suffering. And, you know, there are two FDA-approved medications for PTSD. They're, they're, they help some, but they're not great. Um, they're both antidepressants. And the psychotherapies are effective, but they don't often bring people back to their pre-morbid state. So we, we really need research funded to deal with this problem about what is post-traumatic stress disorder and how could these changes be reversed, both in children and adults? All right, well, now, you, now I, I wish you hadn't done that because now I'm gonna get on my soapbox. You got me started. Jeez. Um, 
so what Charlie said is, is absolutely right. The, the, for, for mental disorders, we don't know the cause of most of them, the, the, the etiology, the actual causal factor, but we do for PTSD. And it's something that should be studyable and understandable and then manageable. And so based on what we've done with studies so far, we know that a massive experience that's traumatic produces the same kind of informational cognitive memory in the brain that any other kind of experience has. And along with it, there's a certain emotional component, an emotional valence. When the emotional valence is overwhelming, the brain can't metabolize it in a way that it ordinarily would to just file away the information and go on with their rest of their lives. It becomes something which is intrusive because it can't be contained. This is scientifically able to be deconstructed, understood in its component parts, and then treatments could be developed. Military medicine had progressed from World War I, where 80% of people who were injured in battle died on the battlefield, to now 80% are stabilized by medics in field hospitals, transported to Wiesbaden in Germany, and then if needed to Walter Reed, and they survive. The same thing hasn't been done with the psychological wounds of war. When individuals are traumatized and brought to field hospitals or in the field, in, 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 in theater uh, by medics, Pharmacology could prevent the consolidation of the traumatic event before it becomes uh, committed to uh, the longer term with the overwhelming emotional valence. Secondly, the treatments that we do have, even though there are some FDA approved or evidence-based, are really only minimally to moderately effective. People talk about treatment for PTSD. We don't have treatments for PTSD. We have things we throw at people, but they don't work very well. There's a project that, and to show you the degree of desperation, because it's not being funded by the NIH or DOD or the VA, a donor has funded a project called the Man of War Project because it's focused on equine therapy. Animals and pet therapy and service animals have been used historically, but apparently horses have certain characteristics which make them ideal for trauma survivors because they're predatory animals, meaning subject to predation. And there's a study that's ongoing, or a couple of studies have been done already, but one that's very rigorous that's ongoing, which is being conducted by uh, Dr. Yuval Nuria from our institution, who's a decorated uh, Israeli uh, war veteran, using equine therapy. But why does it have to be done based on a donor? Why isn't the government funding this? Why, if the military isn't the, you know, our heroes in protecting us, haven't been, AIDS was conquered within a decade, and we haven't conquered PTSD in over a century, even though it's, from a scientific standpoint, probably the least difficult disorder to be able to elucidate. Easier than depression, than bipolar disorder, than schizophrenia. So answer that for me, Dr. Nemiroff. No, I think that would be a good note to take questions from the audience. So don't be shy. Please, use the microphone if you would. I live in a state where they've closed all the mental hospitals in the state, it's Iowa. Um, what do you do to, uh, I have some great nieces and nephews that are, their mother's a drama freak. 
So they're being affected by her drama as a great aunt. What things can conversations or things I can do to help those kids? Wait a minute. They close the mental hospitals, and <sighs> you have nieces and nephews who... Sorry, I got sidetracked. I just had to mention that oh, they... Yeah. It makes me mad they close oh, yeah, the yeah, mental yeah. hospital. Oh, yeah. Well, it makes me mad, too, because Iowa was a beacon of scientific research historically. The, the, the keyword is was. Yes. yes. Political parties change. Yes, you're right. Yes, indeed. So, so meanwhile, I have these kids I love dearly <coughs> that the, the, I want to be able to help in some way. Well, there's something called mental health first aid, which is something that you don't have to be like a highly trained mental health professional or MD, PhD like Charlie Nemiroff to, to do this. The most stress and trauma is like the common cold of mental disturbance. The thing which is like the aspirin is consistency, support, unconditional love. Even if you don't know what they're suffering from, whether it's an illness or just the consequence of the uh, uh, adversity they're facing, if you can be there as a presence, consistently supporting them, offering them this unconditional type of support and affirmation, that will be extraordinarily valuable. Beyond that, it's desirable to get professional help, but in the meantime, that can be... It's hard to get professional help when the fundings aren't... She doesn't have the funding yeah, to get her kids I, help. I would, so. I would agree with Jeffrey and tell you that there's even data that good psychosocial support from someone like you to those kids can actually obviate some of the brain changes that can occur from adversity. Thank you. There's also a woman who's an a iconic figure in our field named Myrna Weissman who's developed... Uh, she's done studies in depression, including intergenerational depression, but she's developed a therapeutic technique called interpersonal therapy. And what she and her group have done is they will go to very underdeveloped countries, teach individuals with only high school educations uh, how to apply this, because it's manualized, and they become a workforce. So you're stranded in a state which is sought to like uh, de-emphasize the provision of mental health care. You're trying to do the right thing. You can do it as a concerned individual, but you don't have any professional help. There are techniques that could be useful. We have to get them to you, though. I mean, if you were really were a go-getter and you wanted to go out and find them and apply them and think you could do that, but most people wouldn't know how to do that. So it's Myrna Weissman. Yeah. Myrna Weissman okay. and... If you want, I I'll will give you uh, my email, and I will put you in touch with her, and she can hook you it. up. Thank you. Yes, sir, next question. I'll piggyback on that last part of your answer in terms of, of how people go out and find those things that aren't at the level of the, the system or interventions by professionals and that sort of thing. Um, you know, thinking about the ACEs piece and also thinking about, uh, like, PTSD. I'm a military guy. I know a lot of people that have are in various stages of PTSD or PTSD denial. Um, you know, a friend of mine actually had a breakdown, committed suicide, um, you know, ultimately. But the, the, the challenge in terms of how that, that process works itself out, right now you kind of go through asking the questions on your annual physical and everybody knows the correct answers to, um, so that you don't get flagged, if you will. Um, but looking at, at, at ways to, to 
get that self-care aspect out there and, and help people understand those mitigation things, even if they don't um, go into pro professional interventions and that sort of thing, how to make that more ubiquitous than it is. Since, as you say, we, we know what to do, but it's just not being done um, collectively. So, thanks. So, uh, first to follow up on Jeffrey's comment, there, there, there is now certain forms of psychotherapy that can be delivered online. So cognitive behavior therapy for depression can, in fact, be, um, if you would, self-administered um, if you follow the guidelines, and there's some data that it's quite effective. The military is a whole nother subject. And as you know, active military are extremely reluctant to Well, it, it ends your career, so it's really, it's really it, easy. <laughs> and I've seen so many of those people, right, until it's too late. So, I mean, we could have a long conversation about that. I don't know the answer. Charlie's right. There's a lot of information that's out there that is virtual. Problem is, is a lot of it's bad information. Mm -hmm. well, and, and, and there's no good housekeeping seal of information when it comes to mental health care resources. There should be. Yeah. And that needs to be filled. But until then, it's, you know, caveat emptor, buyer beware. You don't have to have a psychiatrist or a psychologist or a psychiatric nurse you know, available to you necessarily to do something, although that would be sort of the preferred way of doing it. In terms of the military, I, I just can't tell you. how The military has had historic ambivalence about this. On one hand, you're taught to be invulnerable and fearless. On the other hand, you can't admit to psychological weakness. Well, I think, like you said, you know, 30% of the people or whatever the number you use, that, that they'll go through a traumatic experience or whatever and don't have any issues. And so the idea is that everybody needs to be the 30% and ignoring that 70, the other 70%. No, no, 30% are susceptible. The 70%. Or, or what, yeah, the other But, that, but that's, that 70% yeah. decreases with success. Yeah, re repeated, yeah. yeah. Exactly. But, but it's the same, same Look, point th that there, you there, need there, to be this There's group. a movie that won the Academy Award in 1948 called The Best Years of Our Lives. So this was the greatest generation that went to World War II. My father was served in the Pacific, in Okinawa, and these places. I didn't know him before he was married to my mother and I was born, <laughs> but uh, my mother told me he was never the same when he came back. And in that yeah. movie, they don't describe PTSD. Yeah. It didn't exist then, but the characters in the movie... All have PTSD. Well, they were never the same. You can call it whatever you yeah. want. Well, yeah. <laughs> so it shows the effects in that. The military had to be forced to acknowledge it when... They wanted to have a monument in Washington, and the winning design was Maya Lin's wall that was protested, became the most successful of all the war monuments. Yeah. But there needed to be a traditional monument to compensate for the unusual nature of it. So if you look to the side of the wall, there's a, a statue of three soldiers in, th in theater, and they have, their visage is what's called the thousand-yard stare. And the thousand-yard stare is the visage of PTSD. And the sculptor that did that did it surreptitiously for a purpose, to make the point of how injurious psychologically war is to people. But the military still hasn't changed. Thank you. Hi. Uh 
I'm Carrie Rowden from here in Austin, and I have a question for you, Dr. Nemiroff, about um, the connection between adverse childhood experiences and cumulative trauma and differences in health outcomes. I'm curious if you have any comments about that uh, intergenerational transmission and the shortening of people's lives. So um, there's a lot of data on um, the effect of early life trauma on that individual's lifespan, tremendous amount. Um, there is no data on whether the subsequent generations are affected by that trauma from a lifespan point of view. It just hasn't been looked at. So, but it's certainly something we're interested in, and if you're in Austin, we can talk about it. I'm afraid that this is all the time we have for today. I want to thank our expert guest, Dr. Charlie Nemiroff, and to South by the Southwest for inviting us to have this podcast for Shrink Speak here. Uh, I'm Dr. Jeffrey Lieberman, uh, thanking everybody who's listening uh, for their attendance today and for Shrink Speak. Good day. Mm -hmm.